me say what a joy it is for me to be with you this morning here at Davis United Methodist Church. I was telling Kelly when uh, we were first getting robed for the first service, I said, you know, it just struck me. Uh, as those, some, of you, some of you know that I have a previous life in Davis uh, when I was one of the pastors at Davis Community Church, but I've been gone for 10 years. And it was saying, you know, I remember the new sanctuary going up, but I was never inside it. So today is my first day to be able to, to share this beautiful sanctuary that uh, has shaped your lives over the last decade. And it's so wonderful to see that happening and your ministry happening. Um, I also want to invite you to a particular kind of sermon feedback today. Um, between services today, we had a wonderful conversation with some folks about... Uh, the Calagi Christian Association and its mission and ministry. Uh, we are in a transitional year after Kristen left last spring to become the executive director of the Fellowship for Reconciliation, um, to looking forward to uh, searching for a new campus minister. And I'm part of an interim staff team that's sort of keeping things going as that search happens. One of the things that's always helpful for any organization to do kind of during a translation like this is kind of, you know, to take a critical step back, ask some questions about how are we doing, what are those things that are still critical to our mission, what are those core values we want to hold on to, and are there some new things we should be dreaming about, thinking about. May the Spirit be calling us to something new. And so... Because you as a congregation and many of you as individuals have been key supporters of this campus ministry for a long, long time, uh, we want to engage in conversation to hear what the Spirit is saying to you about this important campus ministry. Um, so uh, after we all go, and, so, and I didn't know you were 25 this year. After we celebrate Kelly's uh, birthday for a little bit, we want to invite uh, those of you who would like to join me and some of the members of the CA board who are here today uh, in the Walker room, um, just for some open-ended conversation. We'd like to hear whatever's on your heart and mind. We'll sort of frame that and then let it go. So please join us if you can. Let me invite you to join me in prayer. Loving God, still now all within us that might distract us, so that these words of sermon, as well as the words of scripture, may by the power of your Holy Spirit become your living word in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The concept, the narrative about leaving the past behind and starting all over again has been a powerful motif in the story that Americans have told to themselves since the beginning of this country's history. From the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay Colony to Roger Williams in Rhode Island to the Wesley Brothers in the Southern Colonies, one of the primary motivations for those first Anglos who came to America was to get away from old, corrupt Europe and have a chance to start all over in what they thought was this pristine, this unoccupied new world. Now, of course, there's another narrative that can be told about that same time from the perspective of the Native Americans who had had 
centuries of culture and inhabitation of what those Anglos thought was pristine, wild territory. But that narrative told by the European settlers soon became part of this country's defining story about itself. For example, colonial preachers would often talk about America as the new Israel and its settlements as lights set upon a hill. The colonies were championed as a beacon of truth that would shine the light of the pure gospel back onto back to old corrupt Europe and maybe even give a chance that there could be some reform there. However, as time went on, this narrative about leaving your old self behind and reinventing yourself slipped out of the proprietary hands of Puritan pastors and became part of the public folklore that we tell about ourselves. It helped to fund the idea of the concept of manifest destiny, this sense that those colonists were meant to sort of sweep across the face of the American continent and make it all part of the United States. And Horace Greeley's charge that was a part of that movement, go west, young man, go west, was not simply an invitation to a new generation of Americans to go settle and conquer those wild lands to the west, though it was at least that. It was also an invitation to young people locked in poverty in cities on the east coast of America to head westward to find adventure, to become rich, and to invent a whole new plot line for the story of their life. Actually, it's been the temptation for every succeeding generation of Americans to leave the house of their parents, to leave the town in which they grew up, to move to another part of the country, to have the opportunity to define themselves in ways that are not so determined by their family of origin or the location of their birth. In fact, whether they're conscious of it or not, That's one of the major explorations that students on the UCD campus are engaged in all the time. Who am I? How am I different from my parents? What of their values do I want to hold on to? What new values do I want to invite in my life? And we shouldn't be surprised that that happens It happens in all colleges, but it might happen in a particular way at a University of California conference or uh, campus because for, you know, the last 50 years at least, it's been this kind of widespread sense that California is that place you go to to reinvent yourself. Just remember Lou Reed's Take a Walk on the Wild Side. Um, A few of you remember that cultural reference. I'm getting to that age now where most of my cultural references fly right over the heads of the congregation. <laughs> Ever had that problem? Matter of fact, I remember hearing the saying that, you know, if you're a real Californian, you have the ability to reinvent yourself every five minutes. So knowing how much we Americans like to leave it all behind and start all over again, and especially we Californians, that gives us a real kind of experiential base of knowledge. 
from which to hear the story from Matthew's gospel about the calling of the first disciples. After all, we have to remember that the story begins with Jesus leaving his hometown. Leaving Nazareth. And moving to what was probably for him the big city in the area, Capernaum. But that also meant he left his family of origin and left the community's expectation that he would probably take over Joseph's carpentry business when Joseph's hands became too gnarled to hold on to the tools anymore. He begins his public ministry in this seaside community, maybe like Santa Cruz, by taking up word for word the cry of the now martyred John the Baptist, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And like John... Jesus quickly began to gather disciples around him, a group of close followers that will travel with him throughout Galilee and then make that decisive turn toward Jerusalem and the cross. Matthew recounts that conversation in this way. that Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Out of that same conversation, he calls Peter and Andrew and James and John, who would sort of form the inner circle, the core of the twelve, the four people he would take away with him when he wanted to pray, the four people who accompanied him to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so because it's the story that tells us about the the calling of these four core disciples of Jesus Christ, I don't think it's just a historical narrative about how that happened with those four individuals, but it's meant to be sort of a prototypical story about how Jesus calls you when he calls you to be a disciple. Now, we don't know the exact criteria Jesus used as he began to pick out disciples, We can, however, from this story and ensuing narratives, be pretty clear about some criteria he was not using. Wealth. Good education. Personal, business, political connections. Clout with their peers. The kinds of criteria we're often tempted to use when we decide who we're going to try to connect with on LinkedIn or who we're going to try to go and talk with at this party tonight. There's a part of me that likes to think that um, maybe Jesus didn't have any criteria at all. Maybe he was just walking down the road, randomly catching the eyes of somebody and saying, Hey you! Hey you! You come be my disciple. All is a way of making it clear that the ability to preach and teach and heal that the disciples would evidence after the day of Pentecost had to come from God. And not from these rude, smelly, dirt-under-their-fingernail individuals. Here's another important thing this story tells us about how Jesus calls people when he calls them to be his disciple. These were people who already had a job, already had a life, 
in some cases already had a family, probably most of them already had a family, when the call to be a disciple came. These first four disciples were fishermen, as probably were their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers before them. So when Jesus calls a person to be a disciple, he calls him or her out of a life that has already been established. That's the norm. It's not just true of people like Peter and Andrew, who were called to make a radical shift in their career path when they responded to Jesus' invitation. It's also true for those of us whom Jesus calls in less life-altering, career-shifting ways. But you can always count on that when Jesus calls you to be a disciple, he asks you to leave an old life behind and begin a new one. He calls you to adopt a different set of core values that may or may not be consonant with the kind of life you were living or the kind of person you were before. So the call to discipleship always means up giving up some things about our lives so that we might take up kingdom of heaven things. This passage also introduces us to one of Matthew's favorite words. You'll hear it over and over again as we read through the gospel of Matthew in this year's lectionary cycle. And that's the word immediately. Used twice in this story. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Tells me that there's something about the call of Jesus that really doesn't give you the option of saying to me, saying to him, let me get back to you about that. When an authentic call A true call from Jesus comes. It will come in such a compelling way, maybe even in such a scary way, that a yes or no kind of leaps out of your heart without any reflection at all. Oh, now, you may suppress that initial reaction. You may even over time be able to rationalize it away. But in your heart of hearts, you'll always know how your heart told you to respond when Jesus called. My guess is that there's some of us here, maybe even most of us here today, who at some point in our lives heard a real call from Jesus and in our heart of hearts we wanted to say yes, but for a whole host of reasons, and some of them actually pretty good ones, ended up saying no. Instead, The reason we said no may have been because at the same time our heart wanted to say yes, our heart also understood what a cost would be extracted with that yes. This passage tells us that John and James left their father behind as well as their boats, their livelihood everything they'd known about life when they said yes to Jesus. We know from another story where Jesus heals the fever of Peter's mother-in-law. Okay, Peter was married and left a family behind, maybe a wife and probably children who in first century Palestine really had no way to make a living if they didn't have a man in the household, a wage earner, left them behind. 
to say yes to Jesus. So if this story is meant to be prototypical for all of us who are Jesus' followers, then it should make it clear that saying yes to Jesus often requires something hard of us. The call of Jesus comes to ordinary people. People like you and me who have already figured out their lives and are really going to be resistant to any kind of radical change. And when it comes, that call demands an immediate response, an in-the-moment yes that acknowledges the truth of the call and that everything will be different from now on. And the call often comes at a, cross, at a cost, the cost of picking up your own cross and following him. Such a deal. But you know, Christianity has insisted for over 2,000 years that saying yes to what is almost always a costly call is the only way we can discover what it means to be fully human and to discover the meaning and purpose of our own lives. Saying yes to Jesus is at the core of what lies behind that generally human instinct that we want to leave the old behind and take up the new. The good news is, even if you've said no to that call before, don't worry, it's coming back around again. You've got another shot at it. Maybe more than one. But knowing that Jesus tends to walk by and issue invitations to be a disciple to people all the time is why the particular ministry that you have so long supported and been involved in at the Calagi Christian Association at CA House is so critical. Critical not only to the students who through that ministry have a chance of hearing Jesus' voice, but also to the life of the church. The church that will be impacted by those students who hear that invitation and decide to say yes. And so we seek to embody, to give voice to Jesus' invitation by inviting students to practice his radical hospitality, his open table that invited all kinds of people and especially the unclean and those considered outsiders and not to be trusted to share table fellowship with him. We help give voice to Jesus' call by sharing with the students how the Christian faith uniquely equips them to live in a multicultural and multi-faith world in a way that helps them be respectful of those journeys of other traditions, but to grow in their own faith at the very same time. And to learn how to work for peace and justice with all kinds of people from all sorts of religious traditions. We give voice to that call by asking them to consider to respond to Jesus' call during this particular moment in their lives when developmentally they have now stepped out of their families and they're asking all those developmental questions about who am I and how am I different from my parents and what are my deepest values and what do I most deeply believe and what does this faith thing have to do with that whole struggle? 
when they're wrestling with issues of identity and relationship and community and peace and justice and hope. We give voice to that invitation by inviting them to hear how the gospel of the narrative intertwines with and gives deeper meaning to the narratives of power and knowledge and success that they are privileged to hear by being students at one of this country's premier public universities. And while that ministry is important and while that is a key time to open people's ears to be listening for the voice of Jesus, it's not the only time he will call those students' names. It's not the only time you had a chance to hear that call. A deeper reading of the whole sweep of the gospel narrative makes it clear that Jesus is always walking by whatever is our personal sea of Galilee. He is forever strolling by your boat, your desk, your cubicle, your kitchen, your classroom. When he stops, catches your eyes with what must have been an intently riveting gaze and says to you stop follow me how will you respond when you hear that voice amen